And so like I said, we've spent three weeks together in the book of Romans so far, and it's been a lot of bad news. <laughs> it's been a lot of talk about sin, a lot of talk about judgment, a lot of talk about condemnation. And I've been promising and, and appealing to you that good news is coming. Good news is coming. And the good news really lands in today. Um, and so if you've been tracking with us for the last few weeks, you're probably wondering, where is that good news? And, and, and listen to this quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer Martin Luther. He says, when God is about to justify a man, he damns him. Whom he would make alive, he must first kill. Man must first cry out that there is no health in him. He must be consumed with horror. In this disturbance, salvation begins. When a man believes himself to be utterly lost, light breaks. Peace comes in the word of Christ through faith. And so we must understand the impossibility of our justification before God based upon our own merit before we can appreciate the justification that is available by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3 continues this theme. You look in verses 10 through 18. We'll just read the first two there, verses 10 through 12. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So in the first two chapters of the book, and even on into the first half of chapter 3, Paul has made a universal case, a just totalizing case, that every human being, every fallen son and daughter of Adam is under condemnation because of their sin that they knowingly participate in. And the judgment is justified. <clears throat> he explains how that the law reveals this and, and causes us to shut our mouths. Because the moment that we start thinking that we are actually good, that we have some merit of our own, we, we turn to the law of God and we say, actually, I, I don't. That even when the law, we'll see later in Romans, even when the law tells me not to do something, I didn't even know that I wasn't supposed to do that. But now that I know I wasn't supposed to do that, I want to do it. Right? It's the wet paint analogy. I never wanted to touch wet paint until the sign told me not to. Right? This is us apart from Christ. This is the reality of our sin and our rebellion against God. Paul continues to explain that that law whether written on the heart or on tablets of stone, was never intended to justify anyone. Rather, the law was given to expose sin and to shut down any opportunity for human boasting. It says this in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Did you catch that in verse 20? It doesn't get much clearer than that. By works of law, no human being will be justified. So if you are a human being, 
There's no possibility of you being justified before God by works of the law. Whether the law in the pages of Scripture or your lesser laws that you have created for yourself or society has set for you. You can never virtue signal yourself into heaven. You are going to fall short. Why? Because God is righteous. And we re- you remember we said that the book of Romans is about the revelation of the righteousness of God. And that's what it shows us, that God is righteous and his righteousness is perfect. So you must possess a perfect righteousness in order to be justified by him who is perfectly righteous. So you might think that, you know, Clint, I'm not a horrible person. You know, I'm pretty good. I just make a few mistakes here and there. But if I compare myself to the person next to me, I'm a righteous person. And you may be, but you're not comparing yourself to the person next to you. You're comparing yourself to the perfectly righteous God. And in order to be justified by him, in order to sort of fit in in his company, you must be perfectly righteous. Do you not believe me? Do you think that's too harsh of God, too narrow-minded of God, that maybe God should be a little more, I don't know, forgiving? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48. He says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's from the mouth of Jesus. And up to this point in humanity, and by I say up to this point, up to the point of Jesus. So if we look back in the history of the world from the creation of Adam and Eve up until the time of Jesus, up until that point, humanity has been defined by a lack of righteousness. A lack of righteousness. If it's interesting, I recently read through the Genesis flood account again in my Bible reading plan. And you're just reminded of the reality of the lack of righteousness upon the earth before and after the flood. But all of humanity up to the point of Christ has been defined by this lack of righteousness. But Paul says something really cool here in verse 21, and that's where we're going to start focusing in, is that that now there has been a manifestation of that very perfect righteousness of God among men. So what has been lacking before Jesus Christ has now been manifest into the world. And that's where we will pick up together. So let's stand together to honor the reading of the Word of God. This is God's Word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. You can be seated. So as we look in these five verses here, we're going to focus in on the concept of justification. And it's going to be a repeated theme that we'll go through for for 
quite a while in the book of Romans, so we'll hit it from different angles. But tonight we're setting the groundwork of justification. How can sinners be made right before a holy God? The text begins in verse 21 with, but now. And that's what I alluded to earlier, that but now, meaning it's a new era. Something new is happening here. And and this new thing that is happening is that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, namely in the person of Jesus Christ. So the new covenants is a new era of humanity predominated by the righteousness of God, no longer marked primarily by the sin of Adam, but marked by the righteousness of God in Jesus. Does that change the way you think of the world? When we look around us and we see sin everywhere, we see fallenness all around us, we see lawlessness in ourselves and all around us, is our thought to say that, hey, the world is hopeless, the world is enslaved in darkness, or is the thought, the world is defined by the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Paul's going to set the terms for us here to think about the world, to think about ourselves, to think about history in terms of the righteousness of God in Jesus. Isaiah prophesied that this would be the case. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. In the prologue of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 5, says the light shines into the darkness and the darkness has, has not overcome it. And so we get this picture here of the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Jesus into the world is a picture of light shining into a dark space. A world of darkness has received light. Light has shone upon it. The righteousness of God has been manifest. It's a true epiphany. A true epiphany. Um, who knows what an epiphany is? What is an epiphany? An epiphany is like when you, you realize something, you learn something that changes the way you think about a situation. It's new knowledge or information that maybe changes your life or, or changes how you understand something in a class. You know, you might be working in some, you know, one of those crazy math classes like calculus or something. And you're just like, I don't get how this all works together. It's, this is strange. And then there's this one little missing piece that makes all the puzzle fall into place. I never found that piece, by the way. <laughs> that is an, a, a moment where you have an epiphany. You understand it. The light has shone into the darkness. And that word epiphany is, it comes from the Greek word that's here in Romans chapter 3 that is translated manifested. It's the Greek word phanerao. Phanerao, it's, it's, it literally means, in a literal sense, to shine or, 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 or brightness. Uh, more uh, metaphorically, it's, it's to reveal or to manifest. And you can see that word hidden in there, epiphany, epiphany, epiphanerao. So we've got this manifestation, this epiphany from God. So in a world of darkness, under the universal condemnation of sin, Jesus enters like a piercing light from heaven, making known the righteousness of God in a way that Adam and the rest of humanity was unable to do. 
Jesus is an epiphany. So if you want to understand the world as it is, if you want to understand your life, if uh, you guys are in your early 20s and you're in that, what John Mayer, the great theologian, calls the quarter-life crisis, right? Why, Georgia, why? <laughs> Musician. All right, the quarter-life crisis. You're trying to figure out what life's about. I don't understand life. It's moving faster than I can understand it. If you need an epiphany in life, Jesus is that epiphany. He is that light that shines into the darkness of your life that, that makes sense. And here's something that I, I learned and, just, and, and saw in the text this week studying this that I hadn't seen before, and it's, is that there's a connection here with Romans chapter 1, a linguistic connection that I, that I have never connected. In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, uh, it says that what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has made it plain to them. And remember, we talked about that. That word plain and made plain is the same root in the Greek language. It's the same basic word. And so this is cool. The God who makes himself plain in creation is the same God who makes himself plain in Jesus Christ. And so there's an intimate connection there. With, with Jesus as Redeemer and Jesus as Creator, and that there's consistency with that. And that, so if we want to know what God's like, where do we look? We look in the book of nature, the book of creation, and we look in the book of His Son, Jesus. Who, who is Jesus? Who is, or what is creation that points us to God altogether? Pretty cool there. Don't know if that's directly related, but I just thought it was neat. The next thing we see is that this manifestation of righteousness, this, what is this epiphany? What is new about Jesus breaking into the world? Well, first, he's the righteousness of God apart from works of law. And this is a turning point in the book of Romans. So, you know, you're writing a paper and you spend the first few paragraphs sort of setting the, the, the course of where you're going to go in it, right? This is what chapters one through two have been. He's establishing the theme. Here's where we're going. Here's the context. And now here's the main point. We're really hitting the ground right now. And where we're hitting the ground is in this idea is that there is no righteousness by works of law. So you Jews who think you're righteous because you have the law and you, and you keep it according to the letter, and then he calls them out for their hypocrisy knowing that they don't, but also for you pagan Gentiles who don't have the law but are a law unto yourself because you have a conscience and the law of God on your heart, that there is salvation in neither one of those. In the law of the heart, nor the law of stone. The Torah, nor the law of the Gentiles. Rather, we learn that the righteousness of God that, is, that justifies is apart from the law by faith in a person. This key. The righteousness of God that actually justifies is apart from law and is by faith in a person. It says that this righteousness was manifested apart from works of law, but it says then it's a little parenthetical thing, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So what he's saying is Paul is not doing anything new. And this was the slander that the apostles, particularly Paul, received in the early church. That they were, they were changing God's word, they were bringing something new into the scene, that, that they were forsaking the law and giving license to sin. Right? And he's saying, no, 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 this isn't anything new that I'm preaching here. Right? This is what the law and the prophets are actually talking about the whole time. They actually bear witness 
to what I'm saying. And Jesus says something along those same lines, talking to the Pharisees who thought that they, you know, they, were, they had Moses, right? He says in John 5, 46, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, then you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And so you understand that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, okay? So the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, when, when Jesus and the apostles talk about Moses and the writings of Moses, you just describe the first five books of the Bible, um, all of the law of God. Acts 10, 43, says, To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here, even after the ascension of Jesus, we have the, the apostolic message showing that this is consistent with the ministry of the prophets. So Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. The apostle says, the prophets wrote of me. And we see that. So if the prophets in the law are witnessing, giving testimony, giving credibility to Paul's message of the gospel here, let's just consider one of those witnesses from Jeremiah. It's the prophet Jeremiah. He says this. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Listen to the name of the righteous branch of David. The Lord, Yahweh, is our righteousness. So notice that Jeremiah, as, a, as an example of the prophets, points us away from ourselves as a source of righteousness and points us to the Lord and his Messiah, who will himself be our righteousness. And so we must understand that the righteousness of God that justifies is not by works of law. It's not by any work of our own. It's in a by faith in a person, the, the one who God himself puts forward as this righteous branch, as this one whose name is Yahweh, is our righteousness. Which moves us to the next point that we want to see here. We're really going to kind of um, narrow our focus in here on um, verses 23 um, through 26. And we're going to focus in on the justification of God and the justification of sinners. The justification of God and the justification of sinners. Now, I've used the word justification like 27 times so far in the sermon. I haven't defined it. Okay. So what is justification? Justification is kind of like multiplication, except not at all. <laughs> Just seeing who's paying attention. It rhymes. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness of innocence, of acceptance and approval. When someone is declared justified, they're declared righteous, right? And so when we talk about justification of sinners, we're talking about God as the judge looking at you and I and saying, righteous, just. And if you've been tracking with us, you should be going, wait a second, how can God do that? 
how can God call me just when I've sinned, and I've sinned greatly? And welcome to the dilemma of the gospel, the, the scandal of grace. You know, the most offensive doctrine in all of Christianity wasn't what I preached three weeks ago from Romans chapter 1 about sexuality. The most offensive doctrine in all of Christianity is the doctrine of grace. It's, it's scandalous. Why? Because what it says is that the almighty, holy God who can't entertain sin looks at you and I and says, just, righteous, child, come, welcome. That's scandalous. And I will admit it's becoming less scandalous in our society because we all think no one wants to be a sinner anymore. Right? You can't, you can't order a cup of coffee without being reminded of how righteous you are because it says, like, you know, um, zero carbon footprint, you know, um, Proceeds, save the dolphins, which, you know. So everyone's got to be reminded of their righteousness because no one wants to be a sinner. Right, but no one's ever really wanted to be called a sinner. But this most scandalous doctrine is the doctrine of grace, particularly if you're self-righteous. If you think that you have got it all together, if you think you're a good person, and someone comes along to say, you're actually not a good person, you need grace. You, you can't get into heaven. You can't be accepted by God. You can't be loved by God because of your sin. But justification says, how do God does love us? How does he make us right? How does he forgive us and uphold his holiness and righteousness? And that's what we're about to see. Notice this. Look at verse 24. I, I like this. It's like Paul is kind of tripping over himself to show us that salvation is by grace. Verse 24, he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Okay, grace essentially is the same word as gift. So he's saying he justified us as a gift, as a gift, as a gift gift, right? So he's wanting us to know that justification is completely by God. That word there uh, that's used in the Greek, the emphasis is actually on the word gift, in the original language, which is emphasizing the freeness of the grace, that the justifying grace is freely giving. The same Greek term, doreon, is elsewhere translated without a cause. In other words, the grace of God that justifies is given without a cause, without reference to any merit in the recipient. So he's eliminating any possibility by piling up these terms of us saying, well, we get the grace of God through some merit in ourselves, through something that we've done or someone that we are. No, it's a gift of grace given without cause. He's tripping over himself to make this clear. We're freely and graciously justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, not through anything that we do, but in what Christ has done. So what has Christ done? And that leads us to the next point that, that justification is by grace and justification is through imputation. Through imputation. So I'm going to go ahead and define this one before I get on into the sermon here. 
Imputation is not a word we use a lot um, unless we're talking about the Bible, <laughs> uh, really, or if you're like an accountant or something. Uh, who, who would be the accountant? Anyone here an accounting person? You are. <laughs> of course you are. Yes. So imputation is this sort of legal and accounting idea. It's the idea of something being credited to someone whether they actually possess it or not. An example I think that might be a little easier to comprehend is, say, in the court system, and let's say there's a, a child support situation. And let's say there's a father who is like a deadbeat dad or whatever and is not providing for his family. He's like underemployed. He's just a lazy person. There's no reason why he shouldn't be making more money than he's making. Well, the, the state, the court, can impute income to him to count him as if he had more money than he does, right? So that's an imputation of wealth to him that he doesn't actually possess, but it's a legal reckoning. Um, and so that's an, a current modern-day uh, idea of imputation. And so our justification is like that. It's something that is credited to us. It's righteousness that is counted to us, even though we don't possess it in and of ourselves. It's, it's something outside of us. And in the gospel, we have a double imputation. There's this great exchange that takes place in the gospel. Look, it says, uh, we have this redemption in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So in this doctrine of imputation, here's what we have. We have all acknowledged that our sin is ours. If you have anything to lay claim on tonight, it is your sin, right? That is what we have to offer God. You know, the prophet says it's like filthy rags, the best of our deeds. That's what's in our account. That's what's in our bank account. We have this negative account balance when it comes to standing in right standing with God. You're college students. I know what you, you guys know what a negative account balance is like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true, true statement. All right? But there has been a manifestation of the righteousness of God in history. There's a man who has walked upon this earth and is Truly man in every way imaginable, yet without sin. And he has a, a bank account of infinite supply of righteousness. Okay? We stand in this position of great debt. Jesus Christ has the riches of heaven and his perfect obedience. I'm going to stop using flowery language right now. Here's what this means. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. He never sinned. He did every positive commandment in Scripture. He lived wholly obedient to God at every moment of the day. This is the coolest thing. This is my kids. Some of y'all, my kids aren't here this week, but they have been in the past. My oldest kid's eight, and then the rest of them trickle down from there. Um, they're most amazed by that part of the gospel, that Jesus could have lived past eight years old and never sinned, <laughs> never disobeyed his father and mother. That is the most mind-blowing thing to them, Right? And that is true, because we know all too well what it's like to live in our flesh 
in the fallenness of our captivity to sin. But Jesus lived as a second Adam, born of a virgin apart from the stain of original sin, and lived a whole life perfectly obedient to God. Every moment of every day was given with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and worship unto the Father. That is the, what is accrued in his account. Yet, God then puts him forward as propitiation. And we talked about this word a little bit, I think, a couple weeks ago. Propitiation is another one of these fancy words. It essentially means a, 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 a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. It's a, it's a sacrifice that um, satisfies the anger of a deity, the justice of the deity of God. God puts Jesus forward as his propitiation, meaning that he is going to be the lamb that is slaughtered. He's going to be that spotless lamb, that spotless substitute who would die. And death, as we'll see in a few weeks in chapter 6, is the consequence of sin. That we die because we sin. You may not even know that. I was counseling a college student last year, who's not in this room, by the way, who it was news to him that the reason we die is because we sin. But we die because of sin. So why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? It's a great question. Jesus died to be the propitiation of sin because of the double imputation that must take place in order for God's righteousness to be satisfied. Okay? We have a negative account balance. Christ has an infinite supply of righteousness, yet he pays the penalty of our negative balance. He pays the fine for the lack of righteousness that is ours. He is treated as if he were a sinner. And he does this voluntarily. He steps in our place. He pays that bill. How many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hand. There's probably been a lot of you. I've been in this place where you're, you're at the cash register and you're swiping your card and it's like declined. And you're like, no, nah, let me do that again. <laughs> and then you slide it again, decline. It's embarrassing, right? Even, you know, you always say, well, there's something wrong with my car. I got to call my, uh, my bank, you know. But we don't have what's necessary. But then what if the person behind you steps in and swipes their card in your place? And they, they pay your debt. That's essentially what we have in the gospel, is that our sin, our debt has been imputed to Christ. It's been, it's been, he has been reckoned by God a sinner. And his righteousness has been given to us. And when I was your guys' age, I knew the first part, but the second part I had, I had no idea. I did not know about. And I wish I did because it would have caused a lot more assurance in my life. I knew that Jesus died for sinners, but I didn't know that I could possess his righteousness. Because, listen to this, guys. If God has legally declared you righteous, he's given you the righteousness of, count, of Christ, if his righteousness is in your account, you stand before God without any blemish. You stand before God as Christ. With nothing separating you. God doesn't look at you and he see your sin that you just committed again. 
He doesn't see your failure and your shortcomings. What does he see? The infinite supply of righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. Totally. That's what he sees. Why? Because he's given it to you as a gift gift. He's given it to you by grace and by grace alone. And so that's where the text moves on. It says, receive by faith and by faith alone. Notice that verses 24 and 25 speak of faith as the means by which the benefits of redemption of the redemption of Christ is received. Redemption is received by faith. In verses 21 and 22, the righteousness of God is manifested through faith in Jesus. These terms by and through speak of faith as a means to an end, not an end, not as an end of in and of itself. One of my favorite commentators is a great Baptist commentator named John Gill. He defines faith in this passage, and that's my favorite definitions of faith. He says, faith is a means of apprehending and receiving righteousness. It views the excellency of Christ's righteousness. It owns the sufficiency of it. The soul by it renounces its own righteousness, submits to Christ's, rejoices in it, and gives him the glory of it. Isn't that good? I'm going to rewind that, play it again. Faith views the excellency of Christ's righteousness. In other words, it sees it. It sees the excellence of Christ. Just like my kids see the reality of Jesus living his entire life without ever disobeying his father and mother. And they say, well, it's amazing. That's excellent. We should do that. Faith does that. looks at the righteousness of Jesus and says, excellent. This is great. It's something to be desired. And then he says, it owns the sufficiency of it. We see the righteousness of Jesus and we say, there's nothing else that we need to be righteous before God. But Christ's righteousness is enough. It's not Jesus plus this, that, or the other thing. It's Christ and Christ alone. He says, the soul by it, by faith, renounces its own righteousness. See, if you've seen the excellency of Christ's righteousness, the sufficiency of it, you can have no no need to hold on any pretended righteousness of your own. Like you're, you're content to say, yeah, I have no righteousness. And I'm going to interrupt a little side thing. This is perfect, guys, when you're having conversations on campus and, and, and people accuse you of being a hypocrite. People accuse you of, of being a sinner. As you can just completely disarm them by saying, yeah, I know. I have no righteousness in my own. I'm probably, I'm, I'm worse than you think I am. Right? My righteousness is not in and of myself. It's Jesus. I have, there's, there's no righteousness of my own. It renounces it. It submits to Christ's righteousness. In other words, we obey and we follow Jesus. It rejoices in it. You know, it, it makes us happy. It brings us joy to consider the righteousness of Christ and to submit to the righteousness of Christ. There's a joy in obedience. And finally, and gives him the glory of it. Faith gives God the glory of his righteousness. So it's all about Christ. Faith, think about it like this, as faith being like a conduit by which we receive the grace of God. 
It's not the cause of our justification. It's not as if God justifies us because we believe, because we have faith in in Christ. No, faith is the means by which we apprehend Christ. The meritorious cause of our redemption, in other words, the work that earns our redemption is Christ and his work and that alone. It's not our work of faith that is the cause of our redemption. It is Christ and Christ alone. And you notice the tendency of all the religions of man. All the religions of man is to say faith plus. Faith plus works. Faith plus the Roman Catholic sacramental system. You know, yeah, we, we, we must have faith to be justified, but you must participate with the grace of God in the sacraments through the priesthood and perform those works in order to be justified. It may say faith plus baptism. It may be faith plus whatever you want to put after that blank. It's a tendency. No one's, they would say, no one's denying faith, justification by faith. The problem is justification by faith alone. Here's another faulty view of faith, and this is one that I've dealt with and I've shared with a lot of our students before at Perimeter, is this faulty view of faith by making faith a work. Growing up in sort of a revivalistic, Baptist revivalistic culture, when every Sunday was the preacher trying to do his best Billy Graham impersonation, you know, I was crippled by a lack of assurance in my salvation. Every time the opportunity for that sinner's prayer was given, you know, you know, come down to the aisle. Of course, I was always too introverted to actually come down the aisle. But every time there was that opportunity to give that sinner's prayer, to repeat after me, I repeated after him. Because he would stand up there and he'd say, do you know, do you know, do you know, without a shadow of a doubt. And I was like, no, I don't. Uh, there's a little bit of doubt there. You know, I, I keep doing the same thing that I've been trying not to do forever. And, I, you know, all my science teachers say that, you know, we came from monkeys and Earth sure looks really old. Is there a God? I don't know. I have some doubt. So I'd say that sinner's prayer. That way I would know where I was going when I got home that night until the next Sunday. Why was that? It's because the preacher was putting my eyes on myself. He was calling me to consider the quality of my faith. Do you know, do you know, do you know that you know that you know? That was it. Guys, if I was justified based upon the quality of my faith, I would have been justified and unjustified and justified and unjustified four or five times today. Right? But true gospel preaching points our eyes to Jesus, who is the righteousness of God, and says, view his righteousness. Consider the excellency of it. Own the sufficiency of it. Renounce your righteousness. Don't look at yourself. Look at Christ. See, we are justified by a person, Jesus Christ, his life and death in our place. 
not by our belief in that action. It is our belief in that action, really, as we'll see later, that really demonstrates the reality that the work of Christ has been accomplished for us and given to us by grace. So don't turn your faith into a work that uh, I, I must believe hard enough in order to be saved. No. You may have a weak faith, but you have a strong Savior. And what you will find is that the more you set your eyes upon him and not yourself, your faith actually gets stronger. I'm not nearly as crippled by assurance as I used to be 10, getting older, 15 years ago. Today, it's not. It's not something I struggle with on a regular basis. Are there times uh, of doubt and insecurities? Of course there are. But they're not as frequent. And I have the proper tools to fight the devil with that. And I'm trying not to play all my cards. It's hard to preach the Romans without playing all the cards. <laughs> but we look to Jesus. He is our righteousness. And as we, as we wind down here, we see this Vindication, vindication of God. Remember the very first week I told you guys that when you consider the gospel, you shouldn't walk away thinking about yourself, how great you are, how special you are, how much God loves you even, which that can be a good thing. But primarily what you should be thinking is, wow, God is amazing. God is righteous. He's just, he's good, he's holy, he's generous, right? And that's how this little bit here in verses um, 21 through 26 ends. Verse 26 or verse, sorry, the second half of verse 25. This, this putting forward of Jesus by, as a, to be a propitiation, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. See, the apostolic impulse here is to vindicate the justice of God in the gospel that those who would say you are sliding God's character by saying that he would forgive and call righteous sinners. This was a big part of the controversy in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther went around with this, this slogan saying, simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously justified and sinner. And the Roman Catholics of the day were saying, you're calling God a liar. Luther, you're calling God a liar because you have to be actually righteous in order for God to declare you to be righteous. And then he said, no, no, no. This is not. It's justification by faith. We possess an alien righteousness. In other words, a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. It's foreign to us. It's not ours because it, it, it exists in heaven at the right hand of God in Jesus. And aren't you glad of that? Because yes. if my righteousness by which I'm justified, was mine to hold. I would lose it. I would mar it. I would break it. But it's in heaven. It's in Jesus Christ. It is perfectly secure. It is mine. And I lay claim to it by faith. It's an alien righteousness. And so we are justified by faith alone, and we'll hit that some more as we move forward, particularly in chapter 4. But we will close with this. We'll talk about the five solas of the Reformation a lot um, through this first bit of Romans. Uh, and, and here's why these alones, these solas, matter. Because like we said, it's sola fide. It's 
faith alone, not faith plus, right? It's Christ alone, not Christ plus some other mediator. It's grace alone, not grace plus a little bit of my works. Why are these things important? See, the alones, the solos of the Reformation, give us confidence and a sure hope. Why? Because salvation belongs fully to the Lord. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. God is determined more than anything else to vindicate his glory. And he has designed the gospel, he has designed redemption in such a way that the gospel, our salvation, brings about his greatest goal. It brings about his own glory. So, the goal of the soul is to preserve all the glory for God. Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And this is good news, unless you're self-righteous. And this is the final reason that the souls are important, because they reserve all the glory for the Lord. There's no room for human boasting before the Lord. And so we leave tonight receiving this message with our eyes set on Christ, who is our righteousness. It does a couple things for us. One, it gives us confidence that, that we can live our lives without the weight of condemnation weighing upon us, without a guilty conscience, knowing that we have a rightful claim by God's grace to the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that is ours, that we can clothe ourselves with. But it also does this other thing. It makes us humble. It makes us patient. And it makes us loving of sinners. Because that's how Jesus demonstrated his love for us. And so as we, as we leave tonight, let, let's take this message of the righteousness of God breaking into the world. And may we see the world in our lives, Coram Deo, right, before the face of God, every bit of it. And may we see the goal of all history is this light of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ shining into darkness. And so when you go on campus and into this world, you go knowing that God's purpose, his mission for you as a follower of Christ is to live as a follower of Christ who is shining light into darkness. It's not a hope, hopeless um, hole of darkness because the light has shone into it and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay? So let's go with confidence, let's go with peace, and let's go with humility for the glory of God alone. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, we'll sing a, sing a hymn together, receive benediction. And again, if you have questions, I'll hang around for a little time to Q&A also. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your grace that is given to us as a gift. That there aren't enough adjectives to, to stack up to describe the freeness of your love and your salvation. God, forgive us where we have been self-righteous, where we've tried to earn favor with you based upon our good deeds. And Lord, we pray that you would give us faith, give us the gift of faith even now.
to see Christ, to behold his excellency, to own the sufficiency of his righteousness, to renounce our own righteousness, to submit to Christ, and to rejoice in him and give him glory. We're hopeless to do this in our flesh, but you have given us your spirit who enables us to do these things by grace. And we ask you to do it now in Jesus' name. Amen.